Alice Murphy grew up in Noe Valley. She is our oldest storyteller at 100. Sadly, Alice passed away last winter, but her spirit lives on. Well, uh, my mother passed away uh, when I was a child, and my wonderful grandmother moved right in and took us. There were three of us. There was a, a boy and another girl, and she t- just enfolded us right into her family. And uh, that's who I sp- uh, grew up with, was my grandmother. And she was a lot of fun. She, she would laugh at everything. <laughs> <laughs> she used to, my aunt at one time, it used to be so funny because she'd prepare all these things, I think, ahead of time. And she worked for a shoe store down on Mission Street, and they gave the kids balloons when they bought shoes. Oh, wow. And uh, she'd bring them home and blow them up, and Grandma would sit on them. (laughs) (laughs) So she had a good sense of humor. Yeah. (laughs) She'd wait for the the kids and say, Grandma, go sit on the balloon. And she'd blow them up and sit on them, and they'd laugh like hell. Huh? She was a big woman. Oh, yeah. She was a little fatty. She was a five by five. Wow. She was. (laughs) We were talking about that your dad was a, you said he was a manager at Sutro Baths? He went to uh, the swimming pool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was a manager of the swimming pool out there. And so you must have gone there when you were growing up. We'd go because there used to be a little restaurant right at the bottom floor of mm-hmm. the building and of course we'd run out my father would take us out for breakfast and we'd be in that little <laughs> that little bitty restaurant <laughs> mm-hmm. no I, I had a nice growing up I, I really and as I said my grandmother was so she was always funny so Mission Street is where you went to, it was very to active it, what they, what they would do on Saturday nights, they would people would always be walking down there, mm-hmm. taking a walk down Mission Street. That was their big kick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that neighborhood must have still been an Irish neighborhood at the time. Huh? It was an Irish neighborhood still. Oh, oh yeah, I believe so. There were a lot of Irish where I lived. A lot of uh, Irish all around. Mm-hmm. It was it was very lucrative. <laughs> Do you remember any restaurants that you would go out to oh, eat at? Yeah, in fact, I think it was still there. There was a Spanish one right there at Nineteenth. Uh, I think it was Nineteenth. It was a good. It was a good restaurant. There was a an, another one, McCarthy's Bar. Mm-hmm. God, that was there forever. I find my father there. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, they and, and you know, they had the usual, you know, they had the bars and the the soda places and things down there. Mm-hmm. And then, and that was the their kick, the people that lived around there. You take a walk down down there at night. So we had a lot to keep us busy. 
They had a little uh, small store on the bottom floor, uh, and they said, oh, all they saw was enchiladas. Oh, we all loved those. <laughs> Wait, was that at Sutro Bay? Uh, out at, uh, at the beach house. Out by the beach house. It's, it was more like, you know how you're going up that hill? Mm-hmm. Well, it was right at the bottom of that hill. Would you remember you used to love to go people watching out at Playland? Oh, yeah. They, they, well, we all used to love to go to Playland because you, you threw stuff. You know, they had these little corner boxes and you'd go along. It was, it, it was fun things to do. And you'd throw them and knock these uh, bowling balls like mm-hmm. down. I was there when they, uh, the Bay Bridge was opened. In fact, I, I was a toll collector on it later on. During World War Two, is that when you started working at the bridge? At the bridge, yeah. And you were a toll taker? I would, huh? You took people's... I was a toll collector. You took the, took the money. Yeah. and uh, Did you like that job? Huh? Did you like that? Oh, yeah. Because uh, there was one guy who used to come every morning, bring me a flower. Oh. That made me happy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you met all the kinds of people in such a short time. It's it's surprising you can. So, my, I just have a question for you. So, do you think living in San Francisco has helped you live to be 100? Do you think living in San Francisco has helped you to, to oh, live to yes. 100? Oh, yes. Yes. How so? I, I, I wouldn't be any other place. I will be truthful. It's all here for me. You know, the, 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 my grocery store, I mean, he's so personal, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He sends me birthdays and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm on the streetcars. I don't go anymore because of my wheelchair. And... Uh, But I I mean, it's all right at my hands. Next is Randy Burns, who helped form the Gay American Indians in 1975. My name is Randy Burns. I'm a full-blood Paiute Indian from the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe in Nevada. And I came here mainly... Nevada from University of Nevada, Reno, 43 years ago, to go to school at San Francisco State. Okay. I arrived here in 43 years ago mm-hmm. when I was young, long black hair, my BIA glasses, in the spring of 74. And I arrived here on Greyhound bus, 7th and Market, and I I call it Gayhound today. <laughs> like so many other queer people came from across America sure. to be part of the gay liberation. And mm-hmm. I came here to go to school. Mm-hmm. Like so many other gay and lesbian native people mm-hmm. came to San Francisco to work, to go to school, or to play. In the uh, 1985, when the AIDS epidemic, uh, first case of the virus that you Roughly heard, 10 years after your... 
yeah, 10 Twin years Peaks. after we formed Gay yeah. America Indians, the epidemic. And I was telling our membership and our board of directors at the time, we were organized. I said, it's coming our way. It's coming our way. And I said, we got to be prepared. So we went to the existing organization. The Shanti pro program in San Francisco was happening, providing emotional practical support, home health care, hospital visit, the appropriate care for those who were diagnosed with, they called it the AIDS-related complex called hmm. ARC. I do, then I remember eventually that. it became, CDC came out with AIDS. But back to my friend Herbie, he was so sick. and Herbie's and, uh, from out from out here? Oto, Navajo. He came out here as a professional hair stylist. Okay, but you knew him in San Francisco. Yeah, but he was a member of the club. Okay. And the gay seven, uh, 89 March, and he was so sick, we had to take him out to, uh, now it's called Reagan International mm -hmm. Airport, and we took him out there. He was so weak, but all the lesbian uh, who were going to San Francisco who knew of Gay American Indians so will take care of brothers. So we called ahead and said the arrival time and they picked him up. And at least he went there and a week later he died. And back then I gotta say about gay men in particular. We be all became caregivers right. to those who were uh, diagnosed with ARC AIDS. And they worked to the very end of their death always charitable always sharing what they earn with gay american indians next is joy ing a hip-hop blogger who grew up in san francisco my family immigrated here from southern china um, in 1981 and um, I was born in 1989, right after the earthquake. And um, so I, I went to school. I went to elementary in Chinatown. That school is no longer up. I went to Francisco Middle School out in Fisherman's Wharf. And then I went to high school at Thurgood Marshall in Bayview Hunters Point. Um, so I've been all around the city. I went to college at San Francisco State University, where I majored in Asian American Studies and got into student um, organizing and got into community organizing and through um, student organizing and working with a bunch of different people um, I started volunteering at Manila Town Heritage Foundation um, which is the old I Hotel Manila Town Center um, and then one thing led to another and staying with my community it, it led me to a full-time gig here at the Binion Equity Center where I serve the community as a community service worker. I really I really loved to draw and paint at the time and then I also wrote a lot at the time too so I actually went in as a creative writing major um, but when I went through the classes it was kind of really dry and boring and for me it wasn't inspiring at all so um, you know I was just kind of stumbling through all my GEs and um, one time one day I one semester I took an ethnic studies course and um, our professor showed us a documentary called The Fall of the I Hotel. And um, The Fall of the I Hotel is a documentary that came out in 1983 that follows the destruction of uh, Manila Town or what used to be Manila Town um, and the Chinese and Filipino elders who lived there, the 10 year struggle they went through to save the building. Um, the community organizations and members that came out to support um, the building and what it meant for affordable housing and and human rights and the right to have shelter and, and housing and all that all those things and for me coming in as a 
um, you know, a young adult and not having um, access to images of Asian Americans or Asians um, who have that social power or have that humanity um, and just turning on the TV and either not seeing my face or only seeing similar faces that are used as like a shtick for comedy or something like that. So this was really powerful and I was like, whoa, I didn't know that my community looked like this or that we could do something like this. Um, and so that documentary really turned my life around and um, I immediately decided to major in Asian American studies. Um, so when when I was way younger in, in high school, I met a crew of b-boys in my high school who used to practice in the hallways. I thought it was the coolest thing. They taught me, um, you know, how to do graffiti um, and, and, and draw still. So um, yeah, through that and like dance, I also tried to be a girl for like a few months and it's really hard. So I kind of gave up, but I've always admired what they do and I always supported them at like events and stuff like that. Darnay McPherson grew up in the Fillmore in the 1960s. Uh, the Fillmore, uh, well like I said earlier, it was like more of a family oriented neighborhood where uh, you can go anywhere, anytime, you didn't have to worry about crime and the streets were just like full. A lot of restaurants, uh, movie theaters, and it's a friendly environment. Where exactly uh, did you grow up? Uh, my first home that I remember was on uh, the old projects, right there on uh, Daryl, between uh, Bush and Sutter. Okay. Where you had a Russian center up there right now. Okay. That was all projects, and that's where I was born, uh, right there. And you were born at which hospital? San Francisco General. All right. <laughs> um, okay, and then after after that, did your family move? Yeah, we moved up on Golden Gate, uh, Golden Gate and Baker. Uh, we was always, you know, in the Fillmore. Yeah, yeah. What kind of things did... So, I guess, uh, when you're, you know, you said your memories kind of start at five, around around age five. So, right. what kind of things did you do in the, in the, in the neighborhood? Well, mostly, uh, as I... Uh, grew up, you know, we just like to bike ride a lot and ride coasters. You know, we built our own coasters. Uh, we go to a garage, see if they give us some ball bearings. We go to a construction site and beg for wood. So, you know, we just, you know, just being typical kids. You know, we did our own building. Uh, like I said, our coasters and riding them up and down hills, doing things we shouldn't be doing, like going down the hill on Stein Street right across Oak. As <laughs> soon as the light turned yellow, so we're just doing typical kid things. The kind of things that parents tell their kids not to do, but then when they were kids, they probably did it too. Well, no, well, don't you know, stay in the neighborhood, which we didn't. Um, don't go by water, which we did. <laughs> you know, fishing, uh, going on dangerous piers, and I still can't swim right today. So I think about all the things I did uh, coming up as a kid. I was lucky. Yeah. You know, somebody's watching over me. Yeah. We should ride the end Judah, uh, <laughs> jump on back of it and ride through the tunnel. Wow. <laughs> on a bike or a No. On a, no. Just, we run, just, just jump, jump on, on back of it. Yeah. And ride through the end Judah tunnel. <laughs> just imagine if you fail. Yeah. You know, but we, you know, we had no fear then. No fear. It was just a lot of fun. Did you keep your eyes open in the tunnel? or? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And we used to walk through it, too. You see anything down there? No, we didn't see anything but the trains coming. You can see the light. And they had little holes in the walls. So we'd jump in the hole when the train is coming. 
And then when the train passed by, we still walking through again. Yeah. Yeah, so we just did a lot of crazy things. You mentioned uh, fishing. So would you, as a kid, would you ride your bike down to the piers or, or yeah, take, we'd the, ride take the train? Or? Yeah, we'd go with some older friends yeah. that like to fish. I've never been a fisherman, but it would just being a kid and just going with the crowd, having fun. What part of, uh, like, what, which piers would you go to? Uh, we'd go down there, uh, let's see, down by, uh, it's one down, way down off Venice. It's a pier, you know, uh, behind By the Gallo aquatic park and all that. Yeah. Yeah, down that way. And, and they had an old pier uh, out at the beach one time. Mm-hmm. And we used to walk that pier. Mm-hmm. And the waves would be coming. Ron Turner moved from the valley to San Francisco in the 1960s and founded Last Gasp Publishing. We started off officially as Last Gasp Eco Funnies Company. And... Um, and that was in 1970. We started having meetings in 69, so 50 years ago we were starting to have meetings about publishing a benefit book for the Berkeley Ecology Center, which was the first ecology center in the country, and of course needed funding. And we thought the coolest thing around was underground comics. And if we wanted to pitch a message to uh, youth about ecology, Let's use what's the best thing that's being let in through the retinal uh, bars at that time. So we chose Underground Comics, and then the only problem was we had to figure out how to do, get the money to pay for it, and then what to do after we got it, and how do we get artists, and where do things get printed, how do they get bound up, and how do they get distributed. It's all very curious, so... Um, I took on the job of doing this, and um, when we finally got the comic book done in time to be sold on college campuses for the first Earth Day, uh, the Berkeley Ecology Center had changed by much of the staff had gone away by in this you know eight months since we'd started the project with them and. They didn't know what to do with it. We said, well, it's your benefit book. And they said, well, we'll take 10 copies. I said, 10 copies? I printed 20,000. Are you crazy? So anyway, so I went back, and they were all in my garage, and I had to start selling them. And we come up with the name Last Gasp because we were trying to figure out what the name should be for the comic book. And there were many choices, and one of them, the choices of the comic book, that, that one was called Slow Death Funnies. And this was a great comic. It was full of every, every the, one of the cartoonists. Every time I handed them a script about something, they'd say, oh, it's okay, I already got my own. You know, the, the smart people were already into what was going on ecologically 50 years ago. And uh, so you'd only hope that people have learned a little bit more since then. And so uh, we needed a company name, so the runner-up was Last Gasp, EcoFunnies. So I took that for the company name. And fast forward, here we are now. 50, 50 years later? Well, yeah, it was uh, 1970, Earth Day, that we went out. And we, t- we picked, just because it was fun, our Founders Day at April 1st. It seemed like a perfect April Fool's Day because it's a pretty foolish idea. What am I doing now? I've got a garage full of... Just lost my job at Kaiser Hospital. Nixon had cut the the funds for um, 
the science things as the Vietnam War started to collapse. And, although there was much more war to go, but it was already start. You know, you could see that it was not where to go. It was cost the economy everything, and it had to be paid for. And uh, if you, the cover is by the late great Greg Irons, who was a poster artist and a cartoonist and a. Uh, he knew all kinds of. He was a, a smart guy. He became a tattooist, and his vision was: is we, since we just landed on the moon in 1969, his vision was: is here is a monster rising off the Earth, where it's already eaten part of the Earth, and in its hair are the symbols of all the corporations that it represents. And then it's got one long arm reaching out and, you know, just touching its evil claw onto the moon. So that was pretty much. And we had uh, all kinds of ideas in there. And I was so happy that Robert Crumb did a piece for it. He, he you know, everybody kind of, it's hard to predict the future. And he predicted that Flaky Foont and Mr. Natural would be out on the Golden Gate Bridge together discussing why Flaky was going to go jump off the bridge in his depression. And uh, but, so Flaky jumps, but he lands in mud because by this time the oceans have dried up. So Crumb's vision of the future at that point was that it was going the other way. We, uh, somehow we'd lose all our water. and So it was kind of interesting, but both you know, basically the same effect either way. K.R. Morrison is a poet, a teacher, and a musician. 97, I moved here after high school, um, and I fell in love with the place right away. I mean, being from two types of family that were like night and day, I don't know, I, I don't really think I felt like I fit into anything, and I had already at that point discovered hardcore music and had made a lot of friends that made me hungry to be someplace where I could be myself on my own terms without any obligations to either side of the family. Um, so I came here and got into a college here and I never looked back. I, I moved to England for a little while in 99 for college, but then returned here to finish and went home for a quick second degree and then uh, came back just a couple years later. So more or less I've been here 21 years. What was it about San Francisco in 1997 it it, it, it it was a quite different place I was thinking about this all day and all day yesterday because I saw that your uh, the other episode and I thought God because it is different it's a lot different and I feel like I've been here through all like this huge process so kind of like looking at yourself in an old photograph and you're like, holy shit, I've changed so much, but you never really saw the evolution. Like, it's so different from then, but then you feel kind of arrogant saying that because there's people that were here in like 91 or 89 that look at me and giggle and they're like, oh, honey, you know. Like, I was the first wave of gentrification if you want to get real about it. Well, I don't know. I think the difference between us when we came here is we participated in the texture of what was here. Like... 
You know, when I was in the mission, I spoke Spanish. When, you know, I was around artists, I made art with them. When I'm around music, I would I would support local music and I'd be a part of local music. I didn't come here and change everything. And in that sense, that's what's changed. I mean, it was the first place I had ever been um, in California that had a music culture, that had an art culture, that had um, young people just hungry to be a part of things bigger than themselves that they could actually inform also. And that, the only time I really see that now is with my immediate friends here that we all kind of hide out and find each other, you know. Um, and that's what it was then. God, I, I still remember coming here and being, like I felt like a, a little kid, I felt like jogging cross country, you know. I. I had a lot of family stuff happening around me at the time. I'm blessed to say we all got past that. But at the time, I needed to go somewhere where I could just figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be on my own terms and not without owing anyone anything or keeping people sane and, you know, just come here and get creative and go to school. I don't know if it was like the space because it was it's so small or what, but I feel like it had an intimacy here then that when I would go to New York or if I go to uh, New Orleans or if I went anywhere where there was also the same kind of ingredients, it, it was too much for me. Whereas here, it was so close and everybody was so close by and then writers were also playing music and musicians were also oh you go, you can speak another language also oh you have the same politics as me oh you have issues with like the way capitalism is changing everything so do I and like finally not feeling reprimand for it or like I'm somehow being entitled by critiquing something I saw as unfair really young you know and I got that mouth everywhere else. I have a lot of stories. I don't. It's kind of like, oh shoot, which what do I what do I tell? The two bands, um, Harriet and I. That's my that's my sort of family band. We became musicians together, and I call us the Viking band, or at least I call the girls that. They're all mothers who basically fight to stay artists because now that they're moms and wives, they're constantly told by everything around them speaking of our system that they can't and that they should feel bad and that you know so I'm very proud to be in that band and we've been off and on for about nine years that's Harriet with an O with right? an Harriet O H-A-R-R-I-O-T we we were we were trying to think of the girl that's like super rad super cute everyone likes her she might skateboard or something something very cool about her but then just when you think she's super cool she like eats shit down the stairs at prom night you know like she's kind of a goofball and kind of my hero and kind of your hero like Ramona the Pest-esque yeah yeah that's what how we came up with it we really were all just stumbling to figure out our instruments when we started and I'm really proud to say we're a really good band now and the girls write amazing stuff and I, I do some songwriting in the band Daryl Lim grew up in North Beach in the midst of the hippie movement. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I love as I got older. I, I mean, I just love growing up in North Beach. I love the, the first coffee I ever had in my life 
was an espresso at Cafe Trieste. And then going, and then when I was in fifth grade, I went to a, the first class of the hippie school is called Rooftop School. And it was just, and we call, all, all of our teachers are all hippies. They had big old beards and long hair and, and they, all, the, all the women wore like these moo-moo patched up dressy things and we had chickens that we had to take care of. We called everybody by their first, all the teachers by their first name and we sang this folky, folky opening song. We didn't sing the Pledge of Allegiance. We sang like some open the door and come on in song with a guitar. It was really funny, but it was, I, I, and we only, we had one period where we would go to the park every day. And it was hippie school, and, that, and it was amazing, actually. I want to go to that school. It sounds it was, great. It, when they started, it isn't that, that way anymore since it be, be, became part of the school system completely. Right. And they changed the curriculum, and they, they hire proper teachers now. But we, we had this amazing, like, it was just the same kinds of people, the people that hung out at City Lights. And, like, we had this one teacher, Mr. Nice. Oh, my God, that was the funniest thing. Was that and his real name? Yes, his name was Mr. Nice. But you know, he was a little... He, I wouldn't say he was nice. He was a little... He liked kids, but he, he, they would annoy him, and he would like discipline you vocally. But he was the best storyteller because he would visually do things when he would read stories to you. Like he, he'd reenact the wind, and he'd reenact all the animal voices. and We loved him. I mean, he was amazing. No, actually, in school, actually, I was invisible, really. Because it was, it was, I think it's also, you know, when you're like a young gay person, you know you're not like everybody else, but you can't really talk to anybody. And, and something's going on, but it's also hidden underneath things. Because, you know, when you're, when you're 10, it's not, your sexuality doesn't come out sexual. It comes out as these little weird feelings and impulses. Yeah, you don't always have vocabulary. And you don't know what it is, it. but you know you're not like everybody else. So my reaction to it was to um, become invisible. Mm-hmm. And that's how I dealt with it all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. Until high school. I, no, high school I was, I was pretty out. Because we're, I had my little, we had our little gay group. We had all of our like, we, we all got figured out how to get like IDs and we all went out to the clubs. You know, I don't know how we did that. And we were like, I, I had no money. And my one girlfriend, she grew up in the hood. But she, her, her, her idol was Grace Jones. Felicia Alexander, I hope you hear me. And she, she got me in more trouble. But we had fun. It's very much a part of like my life as a San Franciscan and also as a, a gay man who went through it from the beginning, from the late 70s all the way until the cocktail and now we have you know prep which has basically kept things which has changed everything mm-hmm. and it, it worries me a little bit but you know but we're just human and we're just trying to figure it out I think but it it, it it's basically completely molded the how I live and how I think um, my how I deal with grief because at the height of it, I, I've lost an entire 
phone book of friends. Right. And I was, and then we talk. My friends of mine who are survivors who know about it, we talk about things like how we were afraid to call people at a certain point because back in the day, back in the old day when when it was happening, and there was no research, drugs or anything, and Reagan could barely even talk. Say he wouldn't even mention it at all. But people were dying within three to six months from from diagnosis. I remember Star Pharmacy, which is Walgreens now in the Castro. And they, when it first happened, they had this little sign on the on the door with pictures, and they said, "If you see this, go see your doctor. You may have this thing that's spreading through the community." And and back then, it was more. It was hard because it was in your face. You could see it walking down the street. You could see it even when you. I remember walking down Market Street in front of what's um, Bloomingdale's now, and you could see certain people walking by, and you knew. Because their head, it would. It wasn't just the disease visually, but it was the soul of the person, you know. And what's interesting is, like before it happened, it was really wild here. But it was innocent and it was sweet. Now I, I don't want to say sweet. It was. A gr- it was kind of out there, but it was. It was just. I. Re- I remember just. You know, San Francisco was all into exploration about who you were and why you came to San Francisco. It was like, what's her name from Wizard of Oz, you know, Judy Garland's character? Dorothy. It was like Dorothy coming, like, to the big city, you know, and it's like, and there were more than munchkins here, I tell you. (laughs) Jessica Christian is a photographer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Right after that was the the death of Eric Garner and Mike Brown, you know, kind of the start of Black Lives Matter. There was a lot of riots in Oakland, ended up riots, protests ended up with police, you know, kind of fighting back the protesters, mm-hmm. police brutality of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one story I love telling. Okay. And it was, I was in college. I was crazy about breaking news, number one. So, like, before my internship I would stay up all night and listen to the scanner in oh, my yeah. car and just chain smoke like like <laughs> night crawler style mm-hmm. and go and chase news because I was just like wanted to get those photos in you know I wanted to get that experience of just like this adrenaline I was like, obsessed with it um, and so after class one night I had a night class and it was like 10 I was like I know I know that there's a protest happening I want to go over there because it was in just o- a high in Oakland, or? In Oakland. Okay. so like every night we were kind of going out there there was just like riot police. They're taking the freeway. There was an instance where like people trampled me on the freeway, and I had to like crawl off the freeway the night before. Jesus. And I was just like still running on that energy. So I'm like, let's go out. I know it's gonna be, you know, good photos are gonna be made, and I want to like document. And I was also just like at that point, un- unfortunately, it was more about like making cool photos than like telling stories because I was just in college and I was just, like right. trying to get better. Mm-hmm. So I knew that like the situation was gonna be like crazy. And I get there and I park on San Pablo I don't remember where on San Pablo but I walk down the street and there's like some people behind me I'm like whatever they're they're protesters walking towards it and I come across my two colleagues and it was Stephen Lamb who shoots for Reuters and Carlos Gonzalez who's a staff photographer at the Chronicle he's my mentor okay he everyone's in a frenzy and right and Stephen's sitting on the curb and he has milk in his face like they're pouring milk in his eyes because he had gotten pepper sprayed by a cop while photographing on the front lines of like them trying to take the freeway and I'm just like okay let me help you let me help you and like his cameras were sitting next to him and I watched those guys that were walking and following me because I have two cameras hanging off me Mm -hmm. not smart 
should have just kept them in my bag until I got to my destination, which I always do now. Mm-hmm. But I was just excited to get there. The guys grab his two cameras and just run off. And so Steven can't even see. He just gets up and starts running towards these dudes. And Carlos goes too. And I'm standing there with two cameras. And there's just a flashbangs going off everywhere. And people running. And I'm just like, I get. I jump in Carlos's car because they were sitting outside of it. And I put a riot helmet on. And I just hid underneath the seat. And I was like, oh please God. come back. Please come back. Because I didn't know what to do. I was yeah. just like freaking out. So Carlos and Steven jump in the car and he just like burns out and they start chasing this unmarked car through Oakland of these dudes that just stole this cameras. And it's like five hooded guys in like sweatshirts mm-hmm. just, like running through Oakland and like I'm screaming at Carlos. I was like, if I die, you're screwed because I'm an intern like you. <laughs> you have no insurance. He's like, shut up and just take the license plate. So I'm sitting in the back like with this helmet on. Still the helmet like, on. Is someone going to shoot me? Like, I don't know if they're going to come back and like start shooting the car. Right. And so like I take the license plate down and I remember like someone was taking the freeway a whole bunch of riot protester things and i'm jumping and i'm in the middle of san pablo's waving my arms and two cop cars just flying by flying by me Mm. like no one even cares that i'm standing in the middle of the street just like waving them down like we're trying to just get a cop to like make a report on these stolen cameras but they don't care you know yeah and then i remember like we lost them we were calling the police station trying to get the insurance information and Carlos is like, all right, give me a cigarette. So we all just like are smoking in this car and it's like, like so free. Like I've never seen, like he's such a strong guy and so like, you know, composed and he's very, like I've always looked at him as like my savior in those scenes and he was frazzled. That you rattled know? him, yeah. It rattled him and yeah. I was like, oh God. And, I f- and then I get a text from another colleague who was on the front lines of one of the, you know, where the cops were going to <laughs> take the freeway. And a cop had, like, he got a photo of a cop coming in at him and smashing his camera. But he got the photo right before he hit with the baton. And his camera was just fucked. So, like, all of us were just, like, so out of it and burned out of just, like, all this craziness going on. Yeah, stuff stolen, disarray, a chase. I've never been (laughs) that scene. But, like, and after that, they're like, all right, we're going to take you off protest duty for a little bit. Because I was an intern, and they didn't want me to get hurt. They didn't want me to get, like, my stuff stolen. Yeah. Um... And I just think back, because, I mean, I'm 25, and I that was all when I was, like, 21. Whoa. It wasn't long ago, but I'm like, yeah. oh, when I was a kid, you know, running yeah. around the city not knowing anything. Yeah. But it's a good, like, learning experience to be in those situations. Sure. Don't ever want to be in that again on voluntarily, but I know I could get through it. Next is Ed Wolf, who worked at SF General Hospital at the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic. You know, I worked on 5A at the AIDS unit for... Um, about three and a half years, and, and you know, I mean, you can just imagine what the doctors, the nurses, the counselors, what all of us looked upon regularly, trying to help, trying to um, make a difference in a time when there was just so, so little that could be done. And then again, you know, you have to have very good boundaries because you're going to burn out. You never, like, you never, like, give patients your home phone number. You never, like, follow up with people. You, like, you never give, give patients money. Like, you stay boundaried. You stay in your role and you help them by being the the kind professional delivering the service you're supposed to and not stepping out of that role 
uh, there was a homeless man with AIDS who came into 5A over and over and over again. His name was Calvin. And he was such an extraordinary character and difficult and sweet and manipulative. And I was fairly new to the unit. And um, he could see I was new and, you know, he was in he was very charming and on right the day before he was discharged he asked me if he could please borrow five dollars and i'd been through all the orientation and like other than giving a patient your home phone number the last thing you do is give them money because then they're going to start asking everyone but you know what like no one was looking and my heart went out to him. I didn't know where he was going to go, so I gave him $5. So, a couple months goes by, and I get this message from the, the ward clerk who sits at the front desk where all the people come in. And she goes, um, Ed... Ed, there's, there's, there's someone here to see you, which is like, people don't come like, what? She said, yes, there's somebody here at the front desk to see you. I said, okay. We had little beepers, and then I, I come down, and there's Calvin, and he's standing there. He's got a T-shirt that's barely on him. It's torn, and he only has one shoe on. And in his hand, he has $5. And I, um, you know, by now, like, this is all happening in front of the nurses. Like, people are like, because they all know Calvin, they're looking at me, they're looking at Calvin, and he hands me, he reaches this $5 out. So my initial reaction is like, of course I cannot take this money from this man. But then a larger part of me was like, realize what it took for him to come all the way back and pay me back because when I gave him the money he said I will pay you back and and so I just said hi Calvin you know how are you and he said well things are things are going okay but and I wanted to give you this money back and um, I just remember I went up he gave me the money like all the nurses were like, because I'm, I'm not a nurse, I was one of the counselors on the unit. So I know they were watching what was happening. But thank God, anyway, I had the wherewithal to take that money because I could see in his eyes how much this meant to him that he could pay me back. He came back onto the unit several times before he finally passed. And on the unit, uh, we used to keep what we called the big red book. It's this 
thick, thick book, like bigger than a phone book. And in it, we kept a list of all the people who died on the unit, like pages and pages. And if people sent back a card or a mother lost her son and was especially um, grateful to us and sent a thank you card, we put it in this book. In fact, this book is now part of the Hormel collection at the library. And you can go and see it, but you have to put on like white archival gloves and you know, it's amazing. But when Calvin died on the unit, you would you would write the name of the patient and the date that he died and any little tidbit of information that people could remember about him. And several people wrote after his name that, uh, you know, Ed Wolf <laughs> loaned him $5, and before he died, he repaid him. Yaini Ababa was born and raised in San Francisco and has a story about the 1989 earthquake. It was weird. It was the World Series. It was the Giants and the A's. And I was working in the marina at a bathing suit shop. Didn't bear too well? No. I cannot even remember. Oh, Body Options. That's the name of the store where I was working. Um, And my coworker, who had just moved from Chicago, and I were talking about how much we hated our boss and what a jackass he was. He was like this creepy guy from Iran who like seemed like he was super coked out and he would come in with his dog and his dog would pee all over the store and he'd expect us to clean it up. Um, it was so, technically the 80s, so being coked out was yeah. kind of just, that's how you were. Yeah, I don't even remember his name. I'll remember his face forever, but I don't remember his name. I just remember we were talking about how much we hated our boss and I said, let's go outside and talk about this. And um, she said, why? And I said, I just have a feeling we need to be outside. The minute we walked outside, the earthquake hit, which is a good thing to do because all the walls were mirrors in the store, so they started cracking. I'm so glad we were outside, um, and it didn't feel really strong. It felt it was like a rolling earthquake, and um, so I didn't realize that it had like knocked out the phone lines and knocked out the power and collapsed freeways. I didn't realize any of that had happened. <coughs> So I went to call my mom, and I'm like, oh, the phones are dead. I guess they'll come back. Like, I wasn't even tripping. So I said, well, let's lock up the store, tape up the windows, and walk all of the cash to the main office. So we were on Union Street, and the main office was on Chestnut Street. So I was like, let's just walk all the cash to the main office. So as we were walking, we um, met this couple who were here from New York who were freaking out. Yeah. And the girl from Chicago started freaking out. Like, it hit her what was going on. And she started hyperventilating. And I had to slap her to calm her down. <laughs> if I just slap somebody to Whoa. calm them down, I, it was the most exciting thing to me for some reason. Because I was 19 years old. I was going to ask so, how old yeah. you were and kind of where so, you were in your life. Yeah, I was 19. Out of high school already? Yeah. Yeah. So. Out of high school with a job. Mm-hmm. Hanging out. In my own apartment. Thought I was a like, grown woman. Mm-hmm. And, um... So we walked over, I got her to calm down, and there was a nursing home on Chestnut Street, like a senior living facility, and they were helping all the old people out, and we were like, oh, do you need help? They said no, and then some guy was giving away free ice cream from his ice cream place, so I got some ice cream cones for the old people. Hey, yeah, oh, awesome. Then we went and walked the cash over, and then we realized there were, like, fires and stuff going on, and, like, 
things had Already really happened, and we were like, oh, my God. Wow. So um, we didn't really know what to do. Do you think, roughly, like... It felt like an eternity after, but right. it was probably, like, a couple of hours, because we were just kind of meandering about, like, do we stay and see if the power comes back on? Like, what do we do? And then we eventually decided... We were going to tape up the store and make sure, like, the door was secure and all that. So it was probably, like, a couple of hours. And we walked over to the corporate office and no one was there. So we started talking. We'd been talking to these people who were walking with us. They didn't know what to do. And um, we walked back to Union Street. Back to Union Street to the store. Put the money, like, in the very back of the store. And then this bar um, that's not around anymore. It was, like, an Italian restaurant and bar. Um, was giving away all its beer because they didn't know when their power was going to come back on. So anything that was like edible, anything perishable, they were giving away. So we got drunk. We didn't know what to do. We didn't want to walk up the hills because <laughs> I lived in Alamo Square at the time and I didn't want to walk all up all the hills because I was drunk, right? And we started talking to some random guy who was like, well, I'm going to drive home to Daly City, so I'll drop you guys off. So he dropped off my coworker at her place. And then the couple from New York were just like kind of stuck to me like glue. And they get out of the cab with me. And the guy's like, uh, you know, the cab driver wouldn't take any money. Everyone was very nice, like very supportive. So the couple from New York are just looking at me and I'm like, okay. And I was like, well, did you want him to take you to your hotel? And they're like, no, everyone says it's landfill. It's probably in the water. We don't want to go down there. So these so. random people from New York, I was like, well, I guess you guys can come to my house, but like, I don't even think I have a flashlight. <laughs> so we went into my house. I didn't know where my roommate was. Um, my roommate had two cats. I couldn't find the cats. So I'm checking on everyone in the building, and it's my family's building that I was uh, renting at the time. So I checked on my aunt. She was cool. Like Everybody was cool. I found the cats. I don't know how this happened. They were underneath the sink, underneath the garbage can, like wrapped around each other. And then we just didn't know what to do. So we were just sitting there chilling, made sure the gas was off. And then the TV... Did you have electricity at your Electricity came back on. So we're sitting there watching TV. And I fell asleep. And a spider somehow that had been unearthed during the earthquake bit me on my eyelid and I had to go to the emergency room. So I was like that jackass after a natural disaster who goes into the emergency room with my eye swollen shut in the size of a golf ball. I felt like such a jerk. The doctor was like, what's going on? I'm like, it's painting me, me, my eye, I can't breathe or see. And he was like, uh, I mean, I guess it was a pretty, it was good I went in because they were like, oh, that's a venomous spider. Like they had to lance my eye and stuff. It was really gross. Filmmaker and musician H.P. Mendoza loves video games. Oh, um, hmm, I'll do this. And you, do tell me, you, you tell me if this is appropriate or not. Okay. Okay, so, you know, we just finished talking about my love for arcades. Mm-hmm. I love arcades. I, 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 I love it so much that I made a party called Mission Arcade. Right, you, ha- you do an arcade. Yeah, it's, you know, it's cheap because it's just like my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, you... You did it, kind of. Well, I guess that was a scavenger hunt at the museum. Oh no, that was a, that Missionary was museum. that was one also. Was that Mission Arcade? Yeah. Um, so we're probably not going to have too many at the apartment anymore. Um, but the truth is, you know, we've always done it at, in different areas, different mm-hmm. places. So Mission Arcade is kind of like our traveling party just for our friends. Right. But 
um, what happened was we, we would just send out the invites and say, hey, we're going to do a Mission Arcade. Um, here's the address. And people would come and steal from us. Mm. You know, like there was mm-hmm. one time we had, we were saving money. We saved like hundreds of euros mm-hmm. for our, this Europe trip we had. And we stuffed it in a sock in our sock drawer. And at the end of the night, like we saw all the socks on the floor and all the euros were gone. One time somebody stole Mark's grandfather's false teeth. I mean, you know, like why would you do that? Like what what are you what are you gaining from this? You're not going to pawn that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that'll make me feel okay is that if he's out there wearing them. I was going to say if they they're like on their last tooth and Right, like, exactly. When this one goes, I'm going to need a spare. <laughs> right. But no, every guest at our party had had a full set of teeth. I, would, I don't know who that would have been. Um, but anyway, I had this idea of just saying, okay, what if the invites were just video invites that I post, you know, and they just and it's, it's video like, game or video yeah, or, or just like some kind of video based on the theme of the party and just say Mission Arcade. Mm-hmm. And that would just that basically tells my friends, you know what that means. You know, the address just show up. Right. You know. And so I was doing that for a while um, and it felt really nice because it's like, oh, look, I don't have to have, I don't have to clean up as much. Uh, I mean, it was still as big as it used to be. But like, oh, these are friends. They're not like, you know, vomiting into my couch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, uh, it became Mission Arcade just amongst my friends, right? Mm-hmm. And then it kind of went on to become something else where it's like, okay, Mission Arcade also meant like whenever me and my friends would like do some kind of like weird acapella thing online or we, we do a tribute, like a musical tribute. And then there's this film festival that started tweeting about how they'd been to Mission Arcade, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> and I'm not going to say which film festival it was, okay. but I was feeling a little bit of rejection because this film festival had rejected me <laughs> for, um, for I Am A Ghost. And um, but clearly didn't know who that you were. Mission I don't Arcade. know when he was tweeting about it. He was making it sound like, oh yeah, this is you know this is HP Mendoza's blah blah blah. Oh, he didn't know. Okay. Yeah, at, at least if I remember correctly, I don't know. I'm stoned, but I, <laughs> but that that should, that should mean that I, that I should I you should, should right should be right it, there. Yeah. <laughs> so well, anyway, I, I'll you know, I mean really the crux of what I'm trying to say is that I was I was a petty little bitch. Yeah, because uh, I was like, oh look at this asshole. Yeah, fucking, fucking douchebag like like name dropping and trying to you know, you've never been here so let me see what happens if i create an account called mission arcade oh my god so i did and i decided to make it look official so i posted some invites and some other things and like retweets of some bullshit game thing mm-hmm. and just to make it look like this is a, you know an account for a real establishment and so mm-hmm. i said hey nice to hear you hear nice things about our establishment what is it you like Oh, your drink selection's great, man. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, you asshole. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, I know that your festival's going on right now. So, um, you know, tonight's Halloween. If you tell everyone in the audience that if they go to Mission Arcade and use your use their film festival ticket, they'll get a discount and a free butterbeer. Oh, my God. And he's like, sweet. So he tweets it. And I was so proud. I was like, oh, this is so great. And I was like, oh, I should probably make like a... Uh, a page that has like an address or whatever. So what ended up happening was I made this this web page that just says you know where to go. So uh-huh. it seemed really in the know. That's all it said. Yeah, you know where to go. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but then I made a Facebook page and it said you need to put an address. I'm like fuck. So right. I put the police station. <laughs> uh, so I was like six thirty Valencia. There you go. That's close enough. And uh, and I didn't think much of it. We had our Halloween party and that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next day, I went to the Facebook page. It was like tons of like hate mail oh saying, God. saying like, we're at the police station. Where do we go? <laughs> and like people were so angry. Of course. Right. Of course. Oh, my God. Um, and I was like, well, we have to make it a thing now. Yeah. <laughs> this should be a thing. Let's make Mission Arcade. Let's do this. And we'll have different games. Um, 
And it was great because then after that, um, Mark Mayer over at the Asian Art, Asian Art Museum actually gave me the chance because he was doing this series called Takeover. Right. And so I got to take over the me- museum, three floors of it, and the middle section was Mission Arcade. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was last year, wasn't it? And you did a scavenger hunt. It was a scavenger. Yeah, I actually, for the first time, with the help of a developer, designed a video game, and that was crazy. That was amazing. Um, and it was just a super wry. Thank you. Thank you. It was just scavenger music is a scavenger hunt but i was like look this is like mission arcade times 10 right um but then last year i did the mission arcade for my birthday because i was like okay i don't want it to be that big right um but we'll see last yeah. year meaning last birthday but last birthday 2017 yeah. 2017 yes yeah. so yeah and then, so then there was a karaoke is there always a karaoke component to it yeah it grew into that yeah um uh i have had people tell me oh we missed the games uh-huh. um because, yeah, I think, when, when, you know, when you do karaoke and dancing at the same time, everyone's going to be dancing in the dance floor and, like, mm-hmm. and for the most part, the games fall away, mm-hmm. you know? So we'll see what happens next. But, yeah, Mission Arcade was born out of a joke. <laughs> like, a really petty joke. Next is Stephanie Smith, a young tattoo artist. It's a fond memory, and it's also, it's also a weird memory because I kind of was so desperate to get into tattooing that I did absolutely anything to do it. And I ended up paying Sadie for the apprenticeship, which is very not traditional. Yeah. It's kind of a weird memory for me to even really talk about because I don't want to talk poorly on her or the shop, but it was definitely, I got fucked a little bit. Like I, I was working, I, during my apprenticeship, I ended up working for free as well as paying for the apprenticeship. So that's double kind of what, the typical thing is typically you just work for free right. um but they basically wanted me to pay the shop with free labor and pay sadie for the knowledge all of that stuff like as much as there was weirdness with all of that it's all things where that was just what i had to do to get into tattooing and that's how i'm taking it those are just the means yeah to the and end. if it was money that they wanted take my fucking money. I don't give a shit about the money. I wanted the, I wanted the knowledge and I was, yeah, I was willing to do whatever for it. Um, and you know, it, it was funny cause I did all of that and then I apprenticed for about a year and then that was when like the relationship got a little weird and maybe I didn't work as hard as Sadie wanted me to work. Maybe Sadie didn't want me to work at the shop and in the end, but I didn't end up getting hired after my apprenticeship, um, which Marie, the owner has since really apologized for. And she really regrets it, which I know she does. And she's tried to hire me back. But at this point, I only, I only move forward. There's only a forward trajectory for me. So, um, I passed, but it did feel really good. I was going to say it felt so good. Like six months after getting let go to like get a text from the shop and them being like, we want you back. Like all of them, well, you know, you, I'm so. guessing you proved it with not only your labor, but your art. Yeah, it was, um, it was weird. Cause you know, my tattoos weren't where they should have. I mean, I don't know. It's, you know, when my apprenticeship was over, I didn't really feel like I was ready, but who feels ready, um, when it's over. So I kind of got pushed out. And I think that at that moment it felt terrible. It felt like the end of the world. And a month from then it was the best decision that I could, that could have come out like it was the best outcome because right when I, I moved on to brain drops basically I got hired at brain drops by Trevor Thomas who I had met through working at club tattoo um Brian Blanco was a tattooer there who also worked at club tattoo and he was the buddy who was like 
you should hire this girl. She'll be, she'll be great. He like really went to bat for me. Um, so I'm eternally grateful to Brian and that dude was when I feel like I really started to learn how to tattoo. Um, that guy's technical skill is insane. His line work is like perfection. Um, He's such a great tattooer and he's such a humble dude that nobody knows about him. He's like so anti-social media, so anti-hype that he won't put himself out there. So Brian Blanco, you're an amazing tattooer. I hope you get a bunch of clients from this. And sorry, but you're <laughs> on the internet now. Yeah, now you're on the internet. Sorry, dude. But you said, um, so, so now you're actually, now you're doing it. So yeah, basically I was like, so this is a funny thing too. Sadie told me that I was going to have to reapprentice somewhere else and that I would never get hired as a tattooer. And I was like, okay, my tattoos aren't great, but they're not what that is. Like, I don't have to start over. I know that I have learning left to do. There's always learning left to do. Um, and so, yeah, I I was like, okay, thank you for two years of my life and all the money that I gave you. Um, fuck off. I'm going to go work somewhere else. And that's what I did. And it was only a block and a half down the street. So they got to watch me just bloom, which was really cool too. So a nice kind of pun there because a lot of your tattoos are flowers. Yeah. <laughs> Dropping puns. Okay. So, so yeah, I literally flowered there. <laughs> so and, and how long did you work there? I worked for Braindrops for almost two years, I want to say. Um, Braindrops is a really... It's a, a shop with a was a shop with a lot of history. It actually just closed last month because um, they moved to a new location on Hate Street. Um, and I actually helped them with the move. And then some things were different about how he wanted to pay us. And I decided to move on. Um, and just to be honest, I was ready to get off of Hate Street. Hate Street had been my life for like eight years. So I was like, get me the hell away from Hate Street. And I knew Nakona was here. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go this this felt like the right time. I was finally, I had enough clientele to leave hate and not have to rely on the walk-ins that I was getting. Um, and so I finally was like, I was booked out like a solid month ahead of my schedule. So I was like, okay, that's comfortable enough where I can go possibly work at in a slower neighborhood, but be way happier. Mm -hmm. um, had, had Nakona taken over yet? or He had taken over. Yeah. So, so he had basically owned this shop for like a year okay. at that point. Um. yeah so I just called him up one day and I was like hey man you want to go for a walk I got to talk to you and I just told him everything I'm pretty straightforward I'm a straight shooter I told him that I wasn't totally happy with how things were going at the new location of brain drops and the pay like Trevor was basically trying to make us get paid by check when we're tattooers and you know we're private contractors so we pay the shop and he, it, he was he had hired new tattooers and he wasn't comfortable with everyone paying him because he didn't feel like he could trust them um which in my opinion if you don't trust them they probably should not work for you so and that is a sad story in and of itself because you know i'd left and about five months down the road they closed their doors so it is a little bit in re like, you know, it's it's with a heavy heart that I'm like, yeah, that shop closed down and it had a ton of history in San Francisco. Um, I wish Trevor would have taken some advice from some friends. We would we would have all loved to help kind of guide. Uh, but it's hard when you expand a business, especially on Hate Street, when it's you're going from this little rent to way bigger rent. Like the rent was just way too crazy for that shop.
Graham Cowley worked for the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office for several decades. In 1995, never forget it, the guy's dead, rolled up in a carpet at, at, um, at the BART station. You know, is it a murder, George? Is it a murder? You know, no, not necessarily. His buddies who live on the street, they've rolled him up and parked him up in, a, in the BART station, you know, in the, down in the bowels of the, of the earth. Mm-hmm. They've made a... They've got some flowers there and a couple of candles burning. Mm. They're doing the, the Egyptian thing, you know. They're putting, mm-hmm. they're doing, them, doing them right. Yeah. And uh, so we were, we had to go down there, and we had to go down there right away because the guys that were getting off at midnight had already had a homicide. Mm. Um, kid had been beaten up, mm. and uh, so we. They wanted us to go notify the family, which we were going to do at 12.30 at night. We were getting ready. But this call came in, the BART station. So we did that. That lasted till around 3. Wow. Because we had to cover our tracks. We got, took photographs and did, you know, covered everything, you know, did, you know, possible homicide. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have to go back to the office and take a shower because we're covered in. We we don't have the right... we don't have breathing apparatus or anything. We just, yeah, I saw the picture. We've we got a pair of rubber gloves, that's it. Yeah, with it. I saw the picture yeah. that, that Peter yeah. gave me from the, from the examiner. But I was, but I was in the tunnel Suits. with the fireman, and he's got all, yeah. he's got all the, the masks and all that. Yeah. And it was 1995, HBO, there was a movie on called, um, well, it, was, it was about a, an alien or something. It was with Ben Kingsley and... Uh, Maria Silvino, Species, Species, oh, yeah. Ooh, HBO, and yeah. I'd watched it, you know, I always remember vividly from 9 to 11, and mm-hmm. he, the little boy at the end, uh, uh, Forrest Whitaker, comes mm. to help the little boy, and as he goes to reach the little boy, who's covered in slime and everything, this tongue comes out, <laughs> you know, the kid's an alien, and wraps it, its tongue around, and, and that's the end of uh, Forrest Whitaker. Um, so I, I was in the tunnel. And this I, is the train tunnel? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I turned to the, the fireman. I said, did you see the movie tonight? Species <laughs> on HBO. He said, no, no. He'd seen it. He'd, oh, wow. He'd, he'd seen it too. But there we were in the, in the, in the bowels of the... Because that's... It was in New York or something. Yeah. So I said, yeah, did you see the film tonight? <laughs> Frank him out. Frank him out. But anyway, we got back to the office, took a shower, cleaned up, got all this... Um, um, what, what they call it, uh, powder and stuff, which was what they call it, uh, that everybody's dying from that's in the boats. What they call it, that stuff they put on the inside the not asbestos. Uh, thank you. Okay. You, we, we make a great team. <laughs> we do, yeah. we make a great team. Think, think again about retiring sounds, from acting. I could feed you your lines. Asbestos, <laughs> there's, a, there's an it begins with an S, yeah, no, no, there's an S in it, asbestos, yeah, yeah, there's one S. Or two S's. Get cleaned up. The, the, it's getting, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. We go and knock on the door to tell the guy to ruin this family's life that their son won't be on. And it turns out that I knew the guy. I recognized him. Oh, wow. I recognized him. We, we, we went in. I started telling him that sound 
you know, it's, a, it's almost like animalistic that came from him. The pain mm. that he bellowed out, and which brought the whole house, his brother and sister, his, his mother and his grandmother, they came downstairs and I tell the story, tell and tell the story of um, b not telling lies, but being you know just not not telling them everything. Sure. I don't know everything. I don't know what happened anyway. I know. Yeah. You know, so I'm, and then and then watch this family fall apart before your eyes, knowing that they're going to be ruined for the rest forever. Yeah. It's never going to go away. It's going. Right. It's going to get better. And uh, and as we walked out. The sun was coming up, and I, I was driving the rig, and I, I turned to my partner, and said, "Hey, I'm done for the day, I, I can't drive." Again, made the mistake. I put the barrier down. I, I let my guard mm. down with the family. With the family, yeah. and that happened so many times. You could, be some guys were good at it. All matter of fact. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for you that passed away. I'm sorry about that. Well, just call the office tomorrow and mm -hmm. someone will talk to you. Oh, there's my card. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. And, uh, but I, it never happened. I, I was, sometimes I could just like, uh, you know, right. I, I was doing that, but at the same time, my, my heart was aching. Yeah. For, um, and, and so that was, it's, it was hard, but again, you'd you'd go out with your mates, you'd go for a drink, or you'd go, you know, do stuff. But it, it would it would play on you. But I survived, and I said, I, I, you can only do that for so long. You know. Sonia Mansfield and David Tracy's first date was at Broken Record in the Outer Mission. So then we made a date to meet at the Broken Record in the Excelsior. Yes. Um, which Whose at idea? the time, what? Whose idea? Must, you picked that. Okay. Yeah. And at the time, they didn't have like a real like kitchen in the back. It was all just like corn dogs, and it was like funky corn dogs, basically to use the term David was using at the time. So it was like alligator and boar and rabbit corn dogs and it was like game game dogs it was yeah. like whatever was, was caught on the yeah so first date bro broken record so, so we, we're yeah. yeah and we um so we're and hearing each other's voices for the first time yeah and hearing each other's voices for the and first time and i was time. like oh how disappointing <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> he's like hi sonia nice to meet you like do like, you have a filter for your oh. voice i do i have a filter <laughs> he's like bane and <laughs> i'm like bane and, and batman I uh, well, I picked we picked Broken Record because it's kind of I was living in Burlingame briefly at the time, and it was like a good midway point. Right, because that's when I was still when in you're the hate. in the hate. Yeah, and uh, we both admitted and came it came over easily in chat that we're the type of people that we love a good dive bar, love a good dive bar, yeah. not a dive bar that's a scene, but just a good dive bar. That's a that's a one of the things that I. Uh, loved about Oakland was the, the the number of dive bars you had access to where I just there's so many and they were so good and there was never like when you go to like I remember going to the mission and I don't know I was never cool enough to go to some of the bars in the mission whereas like I just it was a far more different experience in Oakland so yeah. Broken Record was kind of promoted as being like 
people wrote about it like, ah, it's kind of like a dive bar, but it's not a scene thing. So we picked that place. Yeah. yeah, I feel like San Franciscans, even if they know about Broken Record, it's so far away and Excelsior hard to get to. So far. Away. So, far. so they, it's like, oh, make one trip out there. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, oh, that was fun. And I'll go back there maybe right. in some years or it probably still is not a scene. Like, I think it's probably, it's probably like that. I yeah. Don't, I don't know if it was ever a scene other than the restaurant in the back, and now the restaurant in the back isn't a scene anymore. It's either, back to so. caribou hot yeah. dogs or whatever. They tried to copy and capture the magic of what the Ricky Bobby people did, but it's just it's not as yeah, it good now. It yeah. was a little disappointing. Yeah. Because we used to go. Well, we went every year on our dating anniversary. We'd go to Broken Record. We even brought yeah, our kid nice. there. Yeah, we brought our oh, kid nice. there. We, they knew, like, we introduced our, our, we walked in there with a baby, and, like, by the way, this baby is a product of Broken Record. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> free, drinks <laughs> for the, free drinks for the kids. Yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not the first baby, probably. Yeah. Probably not. Like, we'd, went, we'd go, like, we'd we go li- to the dog We lied show. to them and say he was conceived in the bathroom yeah. so that we could get free drinks. <laughs> we went to the dog show, and then after the dog show at the dog palace, we went, or the cow palace, we went to Broken yeah. Record and brought the baby with us. So that night went well, it sounds like. Let's no. go back to no. No, oh, no, yeah. it did, no, it did yeah. go. Uh, it it was a really good date, right? It was like, a really good date. It like was it was of one funny. of those like we ordered funky sausages in our. We have a funky our, sausage story though. So David was like, "I'm going to order the sausage and you get the beer," and I was like, "Sure." So I go up and I get the beer and he's going to get the sausage and he's like, "I didn't know what to get because they're all so weird." Like so, I just guessed and got like normal ones and I was like well what what are they and he lists them all he's like it's like rabbit and alligator and boar and blah 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 and I was like I've literally had all of that because my dad travels all over the world and kills animals so I've already had all that stuff probably not in corn dog form no that would have been different (laughs) turtle dog or whatever but it really was like one of those dates where a turtle dog Turtle dog. It's the next thing. That was also David's back. nickname in college. Turtle Super dog. weird. Too. What up, T dog? <laughs> no. Um, no. But it was one of those no. dates. Erin's shaking her head. No. No. no it's no. a no. It was one of those dates where, like, I couldn't believe it was like last call, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like the date's over. Yeah, like, time flew. So we were just talking about all kinds of stuff, and, and that was just kind of it made out by the car afterwards. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did make out by stuff. the car afterwards. But okay. that was like, I don't know for you, but for me, I was like. That's usual. That's the usual. That's no, the I mean, seriously. That's every day. No, like, that's like every. special about No, that? for oh, me, look, like every Friday. Fucking every Friday. I'm like, that's, whatever. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. For You're not was, special. For me, it was. For you, it was really it special. Years. It had been years. <laughs> years. Sister Roma is the most photographed nun in the world. So you you came here be- because of your friend. Right. What did you think when you... Oh my gosh. Well, like I said, Grand Rapids was very conservative and Christian reformed. And I even thought for a minute that I would like to be a school teacher. So I took some student teaching and... I love working with the kids, but there is no way in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that you could be a gay man and be a teacher in the 80s and 70, you know, the 70s and 80s. Like it just was not an option. And um, even though I personally never felt really 
attacked or persecuted or bullied or less than, I just realized that there were limitations for me in that town and in that community. So when I came to San Francisco to visit David, the, f the first thing that, that just stunned me was the sheer beauty of the physical landscape of San Francisco. I mean, everywhere that you go, you're either looking up at something amazing and breathtaking mountains, or you're looking out at a gorgeous ocean and the bridges, or you're looking at the lights of the city and the skyscraper. I was just like, oh my God, coming from this pancake flat area where I grew up, and seeing this, I, I was like, this is insane. Why do they build houses on these hills? How do people walk? Like the whole thing was just, I was like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Here we go. Mm -hmm. We're back to The Wizard of Oz. Here we go. So not only did they build houses, they, I mean, the houses here are special. Yeah. The and yeah, and they're the amazing looking. They yeah. look like they're out of a fairy tale. They're tall. They're tall they're and they're ornate they're, and, they're and painted crazy colors. And I mean, just mm -hmm. everything about it. But the thing that cinched it was... I happen. <laughs> we're at the cinch. We're at the cinch. Oh, this is also full circle. Um, the thing that really cinched it for me was I came during June, and it happened to be Gay Pride, mm -hmm. something that I had no idea even existed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you could be gay and be proud, and I didn't know that there were a million other people just like me in the city <laughs> at that particular time. So when I stumbled upon gay pride and found myself at the parade which marched down the middle of market street through the financial district to the steps of city hall mm -hmm. and people were uh, joyous and expressing themselves so openly and freely and beautiful and i was just like i <laughs> i'm getting emotional because yeah, i was like i can't believe this yeah like this is this is where i have to live so uh, i went home and i i just told everybody how much i loved it but the thing was, HIV and AIDS mm -hmm. was scary. Was to it already a called AIDS at that at '83? Um, that's where my timeline breaks down. Yeah, um, I think you might be right. I don't think that they. It was. It might have been gay cancer was around that time. Still, yeah, because yeah. there was the grid and there was Carposis and yeah. you know all mm -hmm, that other mm -hmm. stuff, gay cancer. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's when I graduated from college was 1985. So, okay. um, I went home and I told people started to say how much I love San Francisco and they're like oh well if you move there you'll you'll be back or you'll die of AIDS like that was basically the nice you know <laughs> so I started to yeah so I started to tell people well maybe I'll move to Los Angeles you know just because I for some reason in my mind that that would be a more acceptable uh, solution to my mother and to my family and stuff and it wouldn't upset people so much I don't know why I said it. I lied because I knew I was going to live in San Francisco <laughs> yeah. hands down and now looking back in retrospect I realized that there probably was not a better place to live because San Francisco was at the forefront and the war against HIV and AIDS and leaders in education and prevention and fighting for rights and helping people get medicine and insisting on say, research and care and care yeah, and caring absolutely. the community was caring for themselves and each other so this was the best place that I could have lived. Yeah. Uh, when I came here, though, I still was like a kid in a candy store. I had a good two years where I was just like drinking it up and just slutting it up and just absolutely having the time of my life. But you couldn't be a gay man and carry on and be promiscuous without being afraid for HIV and AIDS, especially me who had really no understanding about what it was or how it was really how to get it. I didn't... Um, get involved with that 
all of that until I met the sisters. Okay. So prior to that, I, I was um, just living the gay dream. But every day I would check my tongue for white spots and wonder, did I sweat last night? Am I having night sweats? It was something that every gay man had on their mind. Next is Margaret Casey, one of several houseboat-dwelling storytellers we've had on the show. And I guess back in the day it was like, well, who didn't have a brother or a sister or a cousin or somebody in the family run away and join a cult in San Francisco? So when it was decided that my brother David needed to stay away a bit longer, these old friends of my sister's were, um, you know, summoned from the beyond and uh, so he could have a place, a safe place to stay. So so you're like, you needed a change of scenery. Yes. And your brother lived here. Yes. Where did he live? Where in the city? He lived um, at the corner of uh, 16th and Albion um, in an old firehouse. For people who remember the Albion Club, it was Kitty Corner from there. And at the time, it was a nightclub. It was called Firehouse 7. He had a gig there um, under the name of DJ Mink. And um, he lived in the tower part of the firehouse, the old lookout tower. Is this the building that's... You said uh, it's Kitty Corner from... Albion now. Yeah, but only because there's a sort of little jag in Albion. But is it right across that little alley from Kilowatt? Is that the building I'm thinking of? Yeah, Kilowatt. Kilowatt's what the last name I remember it was called. That Kilowatt is still called the Kilowatt. Okay, so... A little different, but no no, no live music. Yeah, so back in the day it was Firehouse 7 and he was upstairs in in the lookout tower and the other neighbor at the front was Bear Magazine which at the time was a very popular sort of hardcore um, gay magazine. So interesting mix of neighbours. And it was right in the middle of the crack epidemic. So there were a lot of people literally crawling around on the streets. And this was before pagers or cell phones. And there were, so there were pay phones everywhere. And back in the day, if you wanted to score, you had to call your dealer first. So around every payphone, there was always a cluster of people who we came to lovingly refer to as the jive turkeys. Um, I don't know why, but the name just it, it just fit. So people would call their dealer and then hang up and then wait for the dealer to call them back at the payphone and then you could go and um, collect. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a lot of money at the time and of course I was very, very new. And yeah, I spent a lot of time observing the jive turkeys and the um, the various things that would happen in the street. There was um, there was a lot of funny characters there. There was a guy named the Red Man, who ha- was completely covered in some kind of red ochre, and he wore a hat, and he had a little sort of you know um, Gomez Adams type moustache, and he didn't do anything so much as he just was. So you would see him here and you'd see him there at Adobe Books and there was another guy named Swan, tall, lanky guy who lived in a tiny Volkswagen Beetle um, and he issued this newsletter. He, he, I guess he photocopied or whatever, but it had the tiniest handwriting you ever saw, like the size of an ant. So it was extremely bus- difficult to read. 
this this manifesto that he put out every week. He was letting you into his mind. He was. Yeah. He was because you could barely get into his car for all the stuff that was in. There was another guy there right on the corner of uh, 16th and Valencia who sold newspapers at the front of a, a grocery store there. And he always had a, an enormous rat on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I never bought a newspaper from him. I just couldn't. But, <laughs> but he was a fixture for many years. And then back at the firehouse, my brother's wife had, because he had acquired a wife at this point in time, and um, she would refer to this person she called the crack princess. And according to her, the crack princess would keep her out of, would let her know if there was anything going on down in the street that, that, she should know about. So she, at one time I saw her, as many times that I saw her do this, like bring down a little plate of food for the cra- the crack princess, you know, like she was a cat. <laughs> She's going to put out the food and the cat would come by. But, um, yeah, the crack princess was around for a long time. I don't know if she ever gave Marla the heads up about what was going on, what was going down in the street, but uh, she put a lot of store by the um, by uh, that method of uh, communication. Gary Weinstein drove for Muni for many years, and then got to California the first day of summer, nineteen seventy-one. Wow! And uh, the the next the very next day, I was working at the clothing shop. And little did I know that at that time, this shop was, like, very famous for uh, artists, musical artists, um, all kinds of different people used to shop at this place. Do you remember names of people or bands or anything? Not, yeah, I remember, like, Jay Giles' band, Pink Floyd, Grateful Dead, one of my favorite bands was called the Jay Giles Band, and they had a guy named Magic Dick that used to play harmonica, and I loved harmonica. I used to play it once in a while, and he made his, he wrote a list of like where I could get all these blues albums, and uh, we soon became friends, and they'd visit once in a while, and then after that, I went to North Beach Leather. And I worked there for about six months, and but I had taken a Muni exam. One of the uh, uh, people that I waited on in the town square suggested that if if you like driving, you you'd like this job. And uh, were you taking Muni yet? Yes, I was taking it every day, but I never thought about driving. Yeah, of course, being a Male who loved hot cars and that. I loved driving. <laughs> so I had taken the test, and I gave myself a year to hear from them that if I got it or didn't. So when I went to North Beach Leather, they wanted me to move to Atlanta and open a store in Atlanta. Hmm. But I got a uh, uh, notification from Muni that I passed the test and I was going to be hired so I decided not to go to Atlanta <laughs> which which is a good good 
was a good idea back yeah. then, and it's even better now that yeah. I'm retired. What uh, what was the Muni test like? Was it a written test, driving? What do you do? There's The first part was a written test, basic things about uh, uh, signs, what to do and brake problems, et cetera, et cetera. And then they did a uh, visual and um, oral exam. And once that was passed, then you were hired. What's the oral exam like? Uh, how are you with people? Yeah. Mostly people kind of questions. Yeah. But I would suggest to anybody out there, if you want a good job, with the city go down and make an application i've talked to i've told many people to one was a chef i told i suggested he go take a test he t took it and passed and then he started working in the jails <laughs> and he loved it no cleanup all the uh, guards clean up <laughs> so he just had to basically set a menu and you know, do it, bring it forward. Right. Yeah. So, and I've suggested to other people about, um, uh, meter maids and police force. There's a good, um, and a reliable retirement with Muni as opposed to, I'd say the city or the federal government, the city's so monetarily strong over all the years I've lived here that, They've never uh, had to do anything where they reduce pay or anything like that. Yep. So you, they told you that you passed the test. What's next? Then you went to uh, a training course, which was, I think, six to eight weeks. Could have been longer. I can't remember that part. But... You went out with three or four guys, driving, switching, learning. Basically, that's, you know, how to, how to drive a bus. Mm -hmm. But I will say that the first day, the very first day, and if you've lived in, in San Francisco long enough, in the 70s, the buses were buses from the 40s and the 50s. Not reliable, not uh, really good with brakes, and they had different things like clutches on them and different things you had to learn. So I'm driving with a trainer who's just opposite me. I'm driving. He's sitting next to me. And we're driving down Stockton in front of Macy's going about 15 miles an hour. And I went to apply the brakes, and the brakes didn't take. And I kept pumping the brakes. Then I opened the door, which was supposed to stop the bus, and it didn't. And then I pulled the uh, emergency brake, which was almost like a car brake, on the left side. I pulled it up. Nothing happened. And then... Boom! We hit this black man's 50-something truck. And I swear, 
I'm I'm laughing inside and telling the story. And when I hit this truck, everything kind of fell off. The side things on the truck, the the back things in the back. I I'll never forget it. I thought, God, I only hit the guy at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> and then when I went back to uh, the station, eventually they charged me with the accident. But the trainer was saying, hey, this guy did everything he did to stop the bus. So I don't know whatever developed on that. I'm sure the guy bought a new truck, though. Author Adair Lara wrote an award-winning column in the Chronicle for 16 years. And that started when, uh, I think it really started when I met Nini McCabe. She was Charles McCabe's daughter. Uh, and she was, lit. he had recently, I think it was recently, died and been found dead in uh, his Telegraph Hill apartment. And this is where she was living. You know, it's the kind of apartment where the landlord's weeping outside because hoping that they somebody will eventually die and he did so i don't know how that worked but in any case uh, nini mccabe and we had a uh writing club called daughters of irish alcoholics <laughs> is there a, an acronym for that daughters of D-I-A. irish D-I-A club. And her father was the famous curmudgeon uh, Charles McCabe. Now, what did he drink? Was it called the Green Death? It was always at this bar, I think, called the Cafe Spore. No, that doesn't sound right. Hmm. People over in North Beach, or me. definitely in North Beach. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so we, you know, it's just a writing club where you exchange writing. But uh, at about this time, I was starting to send those pieces into the Sunday Punch, which is was the Sunday paper of the San Francisco Chronicle. Okay. Right, and they were appearing these little, you know, just sort of short humor pieces. And the features editor then was named Rosalie Wright, and I started running into her at places, events of various kinds, and she liked my writing. And that led that summer, I was working for magazines then, to her asking me to do 10 sample columns with the idea of writing column, writing a column for the Chronicle, this is terribly exciting to mm-hmm. me, right? And and I I produced ten columns, which I produced to have. I of course I pretended to have just whipped off, right? Like you know, I was, wasn't busy last night. Here were three of them, but actually, you know, had been things I'd had lying around for years, and were now I took time off from my magazine job to work on them mm-hmm. that sort of thing and gave them to her in I guess late June that year this is 1989 okay and and she turned them over to her superiors the editor of the Chronicle then was a man named Bill German okay but no I she never heard anything and I never heard anything and months went on German was you know visiting the Appalachians of France or something everybody was gone and so, you know how you do. I, I sent a letter saying that I'd had other, other offers, right? Which was completely a lie. Yeah. And I'm busy. Well, you know, I, you know. Yeah. But if they like you, they usually believe that mm-hmm. you had other offers. And mm-hmm. I said that if by the end of the summer I hadn't heard anything, I would 
I would just view this as uh, not happening, mm-hmm. right? And I swear to God, August 31st at 5 p.m., <laughs> they called me into the office and hired me. Nice. And I, Bill German was then 72. If you've been if you'd been around San Francisco very long, you would know this this editor. And I said, "What do you want me to write about?" And he said, "Just write about your life," which was uh, nobody was doing that then. This was called a personal column. I'm not sure we even had that name. But there wasn't this kind of column before, not mm-hmm, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, various people who had produced what are called personal columns about their lives would say that a person has six or seven of those columns in them for a lifetime, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it's what I did. Uh, so they hired me, and I was just completely thrilled. I'd just broken up with this guy named Neil, and I had to sort of start going with him again so I could tell him. (laughs) (laughs) But I was was terrified. There had been an earlier columnist who had actually put on, taken out, I heard this, ads on buses Mm -hmm. asking people for ideas for his column. Oh, my goodness. And I naturally remember all the time it took me to actually write the columns that got me hired. And so I thought, well, at that pace, I could produce, you know, five a year. Right. You know, and it was supposed to be twice a week, every Tuesday and oh, Thursday. Wow. This was, uh, I was, there was a, we called it Folsom Prison, I think it was, but it was Folsom and Fifth. This is a, an extra adjunct building right down from the Chronicle, which was at Fifth and Mission. Fifth and Mission. Yeah. And uh, so we're down there. Oh, the columnists were there, like Alan Temko, who was... Architecture and Jerry Nockman, John Carroll worked at home, and Steve Rubenstein worked at the at the main plant. I loved all these words. Like you would go down to the paper, you would go down to the plant, or you would mm. file. I love the word file. Yeah. File. Steven Satterfeld worked at NOPA before launching his print magazine Whetstone. So yeah, we're on Divisadero right now, which for my time in San Francisco is basically ground zero. I lived in this neighborhood and worked in this neighborhood for the majority of my time here. So from 2010 uh, to 2015, um, before I moved to the East Bay, but five very full and active years um, within a four block radius of where we are, uh, my home and uh, my place of employment, Nopa restaurant. So. Um, the story with NOPA and the community, I guess, is that uh, it's NOPA is sort of, a, I guess, on the verge of becoming an institutional restaurant in San Francisco for people who love eating and gathering. Um, there have been many other restaurants that have opened uh, since NOPA did, probably 12 or 13, or I don't even know how many years ago, but over a decade. Yeah. Um, so they're definitely not like the newest restaurant in town anymore, but an enduring restaurant uh, that still has managed to maintain high levels, um, high standards and service and in the execution of the food. And um, the part that I was most drawn to was just the the community ethos, the vibe of uh, the restaurant. And that was not really well known, um, you know, my first visit there as a, as a diner, but um I had a really kind of more conventional experience there where I, 
I had dinner and I was like really moved by the scale of the restaurant. You know, it's a huge place. And yet they had managed to, um, like I said, keep really high standards around the, the bar and the wine list and the all the food that was coming out of the kitchen. So I went back uh, the next week and was just kind of like, hey, this is a really impressive operation. Um, maybe you guys will hire me to to like be a busboy here. Did they do the whole table for one? And you're like, no, no, no. I'm just uh, well, talk. I came in during the day. Okay. Um, which is a which is a pro move. I mean, people don't exactly apply for jobs in restaurants anymore. It's sort of a problem. But um, if you are going to apply for a job at a restaurant, you're certainly improving your chances if you do so during the day. Right. Um, once the doors are open, people get really cranky about. Uh, folks who are coming in looking for employment once it's like a secret handshake you know right. you've just outed yourself like you don't know the secret handshake right. um so don't do that <laughs> but uh so i went during the day and i ended up meeting the sommelier who i had uh met as a diner mm-hmm. sent to my resume and um after looking over it shared it with the owners of nopa uh and they said we want to meet you for an interview um after interviewing with them, I learned a lot more about their kind of social mission, which is really centered on supporting uh, local farms and our local food community here in the Bay Area. And I was strongly aligned with that mission. I had already had a pretty long career of working in restaurants um, in Portland and in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, so you were already kind of uh, drawn to the place just from the dining experience. Yeah. Like and I, then you learn more and you're like, totally. Yeah. I had, you guys, you know, I think a lot of people it's, who work in restaurants, um, when we dine out, you know, there's, we notice everything and it's actually really annoying for people who don't work in restaurants because of people who do are like, Oh my God, this little thing, that little thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was noticing stuff that, um, instead of, you know, with a critical eye, um, I guess in a more negative fashion, I had a critical eye towards like all the things that were going right there and just kind of how, how good everything was. Um, and so I thought that they might, you know, the normal, uh, way of working in restaurants is that you kind of work your way up, you prove yourself. Um, there's this whole like democratic hierarchy. And, uh, so I thought I was going to be a part of that, you know, tried and true system. And I tried to go start off at the bottom and they said, actually, we only want to hire you if you'll manage the restaurant. (laughs) And I was like, no, 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 I don't. I, I've already done that. It's really um, You're like I've got my own latex gloves and everything, guys. I'm yeah. ready. No, it was like I had worked in restaurants long enough to know that it's a really hard job to manage, especially a restaurant on that scale. You know? Yeah. Um, how many? Uh, like, how big is it? Well, in restaurant terms, I mean, during the week, we were doing 500 diners a night, um, and on the weekend when we had brunch that number could be closer to 800 and you know it's 110 seats in the place like most restaurants in san francisco um would be like thrilled if more than 100 people walked in the door on a given night lil tuffy is a prolific poster artist yeah i just i kind of started bartending by accident when i was starting to do stuff at the park side i was just kind of hanging out there one day and it was super busy and I just kind of got up and started helping and without being asked yeah kind of like there's just you know I started washing dishes and 
taking stuff and whatever. And they're like, okay, we'll pour this beer, make this drink, do that. I'm like, okay. And then like, when it was over, like, yeah, you did an okay job. We had no idea. Like you knew how to bartend. I'm like, well, I don't, I've just been sitting here watching people for years. Uh, so like they started, they, yeah, they gave me a chance and I started bartending every once in a while and learning a little bit. And then, um, when the ownership flip flopped, uh, I don't, I just became the manager all of a sudden and ended the bar, up the bar manager. Yeah. Okay. So, which happens every time this happens, but, uh, so yeah, I did that for a while and then, um, kind of burned out working like six days a week from open to close was a bit much. Uh, and then I, I took a step away then I injured myself and didn't really work for a while. And then, um, once I finally was able to walk and carry stuff again, uh, I took a Monday night shift to pops just basically to kind of get out of the house and start doing stuff again. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years doing various things. And then one day I decided to fix a bunch of stuff and the owners were like, Oh, it's about time someone like stepped up. So you can run the place now. <laughs> and that's kind of how that happened as well. Kind of the same story. Almost. Yeah. Um, you said you were there when the giants clinched the world series in 2010. Yeah. Which of course is, I would say the only one that matters, but still to me the best. Do you want to yeah. talk about that night? Are you are, wait, are you a Giants fan? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, do you want to talk about that night at the bar? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, the whole, like, that whole end of the season and the playoffs was was pretty crazy. And back then, it's back then, eight years ago, um, a lot of bars were still, like, anti-sports. You know, they wouldn't show baseball games or basketball games. And because a couple of our other bartenders were huge Giants fans, we were already set up and equipped for that. And I brought in my big screen TV. So we had multiple TVs to watch on. We had someone DJing during the commercials. So we didn't have to listen to the stupid ads. And, um, was the bar just cause where I was, was loud enough that we didn't have to hear Joe Buck's voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was another thing. Like we were trying to figure out how we could get rid of Joe Buck as much as possible, but it was also because no one else was really playing sports. Like we were packed. So, you know, I think it was like pops, uh, J and B, the 500 like those were like the few bars where you could watch playoffs in the world series that season and then like over the next couple of years i watched all these bars suddenly like oh we'll have the giants on well the playoffs on and like putting up projectors and stuff i was gonna say going back to what you said about in, at least in 2010 bars being reluctant i wonder yeah. what happened between like yeah. all the championships of all the teams around here it's been a crazy run but anyway yeah, it's weird. I mean, I guess because, like, I don't know, the Niners and, like, the Super Bowl is always big at bars, but every Sunday doesn't really seem to matter. Um, but for some reason, that baseball thing really became a thing. And I think that's also carried over the Warriors as well. I know, like, I I wasn't the biggest basketball fan, and I used to be super annoyed when someone would come in and, like, oh, can you put the basketball game on? I'm like, oh, the Warriors are playing tonight? And they're like, oh, no, like... I don't know, Milwaukee or something. I'm like, no, we're not going to watch some like out of market game right now. Like I want to watch point break. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, can we go back to the, the, the night of game five? I remember we had to close after the game cause it was just insane. And 24th in York and the mission, um, you know, it's kind of like 
police aren't going to be coming anytime soon. Like I remember like fireworks going underneath cars and people firing guns into the air. And, um, and then two of my friends, uh, one of them got punched and one of them tripped, but they both broke their nose and broke a tooth. And like their reactions were just polar opposites of each other. Like one of them's cheery and happy and laughing about it. And the other one's just having a complete meltdown, you know, and screaming how she needs to get an ambulance, go to the hospital. I'm like, it's two blocks away. Like you could walk, but, uh, yeah, it was a f- interesting night. And then, yeah, just having to close the bar. Cause it was just so rowdy outside and so many people. And one of the few, few nights of the year that we actually close. What did you do after you, after the bar? Closed? Um, then I made my way to, to mission street. And, uh, I, I think I left my bike at the bar and I remember just walking around and by that point, you know, buses are being turned over and garbage cans are being lit and on fire in the middle of the street. And, um, at the time I lived right by the beauty bar and I remember being at that intersection, uh, and people firing guns off and I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to duck inside somewhere. And I think almost every, all three world series, I ended up at the Lexington, um, to finish celebrating. I got stuck in beauty bar the last time cause they wouldn't let anyone out for a while. Uh, until they cleared the intersection. And then I think that night at the Lexington, I had to show them my ID to, to show them that I lived right there. And like, I'm your neighbor. Like I just want to, <laughs> I'm not going to break anything. 